This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It is a common feeling amongst many people that we're dealing with more stress in our lives than ever before, whether that comes from dealing with the economy or from our professional lives. The stress is there. Some people are able to deal with it while others are not, and that can lead to a wide range of medical issues like anxiety, depression, PTSD, and more. New research will be going on soon here at the University of Pennsylvania that's trying to find out how these variables and the environment around it may be affecting us. Michael Platt is a professor of neuroscience at the Perelman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a professor of marketing at the Wharton School and professor of psychology in Penn School of Arts and Sciences. Shelley Berger is director of the Epigenetics Institute here at Penn, as well as professor of cell and developmental biology and professor of genetics at the Perelman School, as well as a professor of biology. They are both PIC professors here at the school, which is Penn Integrates Knowledge. These are professors who are interdisciplinary scholars from two or more areas of study, and they will be involved in this research that I just mentioned. It's great to have them both here in the studio with us today. Michael, Shelley, great to have you here. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So I guess let's start with how this idea of looking at stress really kind of started in in the first place. Who would like to take that? Well, um, it's it's been something we've been interested in for some time. Well, actually, fairly recently. Historically, my the research I've been do- doing is focused on epigenetics, uh, which um, leads has led into this interest in the environment and how it affects uh, behavior. So that's been sort of a slow process in in my research, uh, but. Um, it, In recent years, we've become very interested in in the brain. Uh, First, from work we started on the ant uh, system. We actually have an ant lab over at Perlman School of Medicine. Um, We've been interested in in ants and studying their behavior. They've been a great model for behavior. And then recently, we became interested in mouse and uh, behavior of of, uh, mouse and studying the brain and epigenetics in, in the brain. Uh, So that then led through conversations with Michael that we can get to in a little bit how we – this whole thing began um, on crossing species and studying mouse, uh, primate, and even – and human. And so for people that haven't heard of epigenetics before, give us a little uh, better understanding of what exactly it is. Right. Uh, epigenetics is is the study of how um, how the how the environment really affects um, the way um, genes are expressed. So um, we're we commonly think about mutations affecting uh, genes and gene expression, but epigenetics is the study of how uh, the environment can affect gene the way genes are turned on and off without mutations. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's specifically the effect of how chemicals coming in from the environment through our bodies uh, can uh, sort of decorate the DNA, decorate the proteins that associate with the DNA, and change the way genes are turned on and off. So that's of great interest because many things are coming in from the environment, including stress. Yeah. I mean, it, through diet, of course, you can think of, you know, 
substances that come in. But here we're talking about um, psychological effects and stress. And that can lead to changes in the brain, as we know from P PTSD is a great example that you brought up earlier. So, Michael, your interest from, from your end of the perspective comes from where? Well, I'm interested in this for a variety of reasons. I mean, we have been interested in behavior for a long time, and, um, and we got interested in uh, how genes themselves affect the development of the structure and function of the brain and nervous system to ultimately produce behavior. But of course, that equation leaves out the central uh, role of epigenetics that, that Shelley just described, which is that you know basically the same genes in the same body in a different environment can yeah. lead to very different outcomes. So if you imagine yourself living with um, you know, lots of family support, for example, you might respond better to uh, the stresses of the environment, to a stock market crash, to uh, problems in the economy, et cetera. But if you are living alone without any social support, you don't have friends and family around you, then that stressful event could be, or the long-term stress, can be much more impactful on your body and your brain. And so this is really how this, this, uh, this collaboration has um, taken root because, so Shelley and I met um, two years ago uh, when I had just arrived here from Duke and we, um, it was, she had this fantastic idea to have these PIK dinners where we would get together with the other uh, PIC professors here. And we discovered that there were a number of us who were very interested in, in working on the brain and as Shelley and I began talking, we began to realize that uh, we were interested in very similar things, although our, our um, expertise is very uh, complementary. So, um, yeah. you know, we'd been working on, uh, you know, basically the neurophysiology of behavior, the neurophysiology of social behavior, and more recently how, how um, genetics might um, influence that. But, you know, we had really no expertise in, in uh, epigenetics at all. So then the, the crossover then going back to where primates are concerned, or you mentioned ants, how, how do you think that research potentially is going to correlate with potentially the understanding, the better understanding of the human brain and how it yeah. reacts to stress from environmental factors? Right. Well, um, we had been studying, we've been studying for the past five years um, mouse behavior and you can model stress in mice. There's something called fear conditioning. It's a m method by which you, um, you, you subject the, the mouse to stress. Mm -hmm. And then we can then study what happens to the brain. How, how does learning and memory affect? Um, it, it, how is it affected by, by um, str the stress of fear conditioning? So that's sort of a model, if you will, for um, stress in, yeah. in the mouse. Um, then in, in primates, um, well, let me skip to humans, and then Michael can come back to, to primates. Um, we'd been studying, we, we'd been working with post-mortem human brains from people that had suffered from uh, a neurodegeneration from Alzheimer's disease. So we've been developing a lot of methodology mm -hmm. to study um, parts of the brain. And humans are difficult because, of course, they're not experimental animals. Sure. So yeah. we have to work out all the methods to carry out um, high-resolution studies of these sort of chemical marks I've been talking about in the brain in, from human postmortem samples. So we'd worked all of this out and then starting to get interested in um, some results we had in mouse, we thought that the crossover to, between 
um, as I said, fear conditioning in mouse and PTSD in human could be really interesting. So we then actually, through interactions with Michael, we got in touch with um, a, a, a guy who has a human biobank of um, humans who suffered from PTSD. So mm -hmm. now we can take these methods that we've developed in mouse, then, you know, fine-tuned in human postmortem brains through our work on Alzheimer's, and now we can look at PTSD in humans. So that's really great. And then Michael filled in the great middle part with primate research, right. which is a great link between Right, the two. right. Because, I mean, as as useful as the mouse is for understanding a lot of the basic processes that we think are involved in, you know, the response of the human brain to stress, for example, sometimes that translation is not perfect. Um, and that just reflects the fact that, you know, mice and humans last shared a common answer, m ancestor much longer ago than, say, sure. uh, humans and monkeys. And for that reason, you know, the the human brain and the monkey brain are much more similar than the human brain and the mouse brain. And there are certain aspects of behavior in terms of behavioral complexity and in particular social complexity that are shared between humans and monkeys and that we that are, are less, you know, well paralleled in the mouse. And so that puts us in a very nice position to be able to go from mouse to monkey to human, where the monkey gives us the capability to look at some of these other issues like for example social support and you know and how right. that how that might um, help or not help with the you know the problems that one encounters uh, with social competition so you know living in a this is very different from what mice experience people and monkeys live in groups they live in groups for a good reason because it allows you to do things that you can't do alone, like right. evade predators or or chase other groups away, right, and and get resources. But on the other hand, when you're living in a group, you have to compete with everybody else, right? So that's a, a source of stress um, that I think we all uh, can can <laughs> yeah. can oh. easily identify with, yes. and you know, and I think that that you know. Not only does this, I, I think, I mean, this is a, a beautiful partnership because it has the, you know, the potential to lead to understandings that can lead to new treatments. Right. Um, but also, I think, uh, you know, it, putting my Wharton hat on, you know, this this kind of project can potentially illuminate ways in which we might be able to mitigate stress, say, within, in the workplace, or in the workplace yeah. right? So, I mean, you know, huge problem these days. I mean, burnout, you know, is, is like the number one topic practically that I hear from our MBA students. Um, and, you know, they want to know how do, you, how do you deal with that? I mean, you hear the same thing yeah. from, you know, from residents who are training uh, in medicine. It's the same problem. Yeah. So stress is everywhere. Let me just interject one thing. Yeah. So the, the beautiful thing about the primates with respect to humans is that humans are an experimental animal. So we don't yeah. know exactly yeah. what their social situation is in its entirety. Whereas Michael, we were just talking about before we walked in, they watch those animals all the time. That he has, uh, right. <laughs> he has, you know, scientists working with him, uh, watching the animals in their natural habitat. So he know they know exactly what sort of place they have in right. the social spectrum and we can't know that all you know about humans as right. much as we get what's called metadata about humans um, that we can we can get information about their background we we they're not experimental animals we can't control 
But it it's, it, it it seems like in, in in how this seemingly this link, as you mentioned, from mice to monkey and monkey to human, that potential area in you know between mice and monkey seemingly is is very. It feels like it's very important in this area because, mm-hmm. as you said, there's more of a more recent link between monkey and human than there is necessarily between human and mouse. Right. Well, I think that's why these studies need to be done, and there are very few places where you can really do them and where people will uh, actually collaborate to work on, you know, trying to, you know, the, the, to to discover those links and to make the connections. And I think, you know, what, what Shelley can do in her lab is with the you know, really exquisite um, techniques and technologies that allow you to hone in on the mechanism, we can kind of closely approximate in primates, but we don't have, that's not the same kind of thing that we can do. On the other hand, what we can provide, as Shelley said, is a much richer uh, understanding of the social environment and all of the other factors that might affect an individual and how they uh, respond to stress and, and how that ultimately leads to changes in behavior. And in fact, um, the, you know, the, um, the particular population of monkeys that we study um, actually evolves. So this is a population in which, you know, individuals are free to fight and to flee and to breed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, you know, some monkeys do better than others. And so um, that means that uh, whatever traits those individuals have, say traits that allow them to buffer stress, to make uh, alliances and connections that, um, that help them to do that, um, that that can be passed on to the next generation. So we can actually see this, these kinds of changes in the population um, over time. That's something that's also almost impossible to see in people too, right? Yeah. We're joined here in studio by Michael Platt and Shelley Berger, who are uh, Penn University of Pennsylvania PIC professors. Penn, uh, Penn integrates knowledge. We're talking about the research that uh, they will be doing uh, really surrounding stress. Uh, and, and you touched on it briefly, Michael, but I think it's important to bring it up, is, is that the potential for this, the hope is, is that if you find enough links, you're talking about being able to deal with a lot of these medical issues, which are certainly so prevalent today. I mean, not just the burnout, but you know, depression, suicide, you know, PTSD. These are things that that are that are affecting millions upon millions of people each and every year. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's really uh, compelling to to see the data. And in fact, I was you know, there was a uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to a report coming out um, over the last week or so that uh, analyzed. Um, the incredible uh, increase in uh, the prevalence of depression and anxiety, especially in teenagers after the introduction of smartphones in, um, you know, in the, in the 2000s. Yeah. And um, so you know, there does seem to be potentially some link to uh, you know, the kinds of technological environments in which we find ourselves. And you know, I think one implication is that social, that leads to social disconnection, right? Yeah. Uh, and that when you and we, you know, which I think reinforces what we've learned both in people and in monkeys is that, at least for for primates like us and monkeys, having social support is really critical. And if you don't have it, uh, then things really fall apart. But the, the social support uh, aspect of it, it's 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 not as much of a factor when you're when you're talking about mice. To a degree, it is with ants when you think about how ants kind of colonize with everything, but not necessarily with uh, with mice as much. Correct. Mm-hmm. I, that's an astute observation. The ants actually are a great model for social interact, complex social interactions. And 
it, there are very few models like that. Um, that's why the medical school hosts uh, – I'm shout out to the dean of medicine and the vice yeah. dean that they support us to have an ant lab in the uh, school of medicine in, in Smilo, the beautiful sparkling new building down the road. Um, they see the, um, you know, the, the great um, translational aspects of studying ants and their social um, interactions. So, um, yeah. So how will that, how do you think that, that information potentially can play out when you're talking about trying to deal right. with, with stress and, and how yep. people are reacting to it? Well, okay, I'll, I'll go back to our mouse research, which we're translating both ways to the ants and, and would love to translate it to the monkeys and definitely to humans. Um, we discovered that um, the, the machinery um, to make uh, one of the chemicals that's placed on the genes to regulate them, um, the machinery is associated with the genes. It's literally there. That machinery, it's actually an enzyme that makes this chemical, and that enzyme can be inhibited. And we think that enzyme, if we, we have evidence, we, we just published this recently, uh, just a couple weeks ago um, in Nature, that um, if we inhibit that enzyme, mm -hmm. we can alter learning and memory in mouse. Mm. So this is the kind of experiment you can do in mouse. We can't do it in primate right. because it, they're too complicated. We obviously can't do that in human. Um, so that illustrates how great mouse is, um, that we can actually alter this this uh, enzyme in in the brain, in the hippocampus of, of mouse, a structure in, in the brain that hmm. humans also have that regulates, um, that's involved in learning and memory of one of the key little regions in the brain. Um, now that inhibitor, so our real interest in one of the things we've been talking about is whether an inhibitor like that could be relevant to human. Now, we're not talking about the kinds of stresses our kids go through over smartphones, but now we're talking about really medically, you know, the kinds of stresses you were mentioning yeah. a moment ago, the kinds of things that are really, you know, really impede your ability to function. And then the other piece to this is, and going back to kind of the business, the Wharton hat for a second is mm -hmm. you mentioned about all the, the potential change you could see down the road with this. We're in a time right now, as we've talked before, about we're in an, in an economic kind of vornado, it feels like <laughs> at times, where healthcare is concerned with all of the costs and, and, mm -hmm. and everything that is associated with it. And to be able to kind of chip away at some of the pieces of it, at least on this perspective, sure, down the road sure, becomes sure, very important. Sure. I mean, and, and hopefully down the road is not so far down the road. I mean, the, right. the, yeah. the enzyme that, you know, that Shelley's talked about, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's quite clear that one could imagine developing a drug to target that specific mechanism. And so then if you had an individual who, you know, a combat veteran uh, who was uh, exposed, to, exposed to a blast or, or something else that was incredibly stressful, you could potentially deliver that drug, you know, at the right place in the right time uh, and, and mm. block the formation of the bad memories, right? So that, you know, that would be mm. incredible. That'd be an incredible opportunity. I mean, to get back to kind of the, you know, the, we're in the midst, again, of a big healthcare debate um, and uh, you know the, the other extension of this are, are ways of um, trying to mitigate 
stress, right, to, before it, it leads to something that's, you know, so if we're talking about chronic stress rather right. than these acute stresses, um, are there ways that we can prevent it, right, through, and there are a lot of options that are out there that people are exploring, whether that's um, improving your social connections, uh, which right. I think is, is potentially very important, especially as people age, they tend to, to lose some of those connections. Um, uh, mindfulness and meditation and exercise, we know those things are all really good. Um, we just don't know really how they work. <laughs> but part of this also in reading some of the background uh, material on, on the research is the difference between people that handle stress really well and the people that don't handle stress really well. And that connection or, or finding out what that disconnect is that, you know, some people for some reason can handle it. No problem. No matter what you throw at them, they can handle it. But there are other people right. that can't. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, this is a really tricky and interesting and, uh, uh, you know, important question, which is, you know, is it something you're born with? Or something you can teach, right? Um, I mean, and the you know the fabulous work of, of Angela Duckworth here at Penn, yep. you know, on grit, which is this yep. you know this resilience. Um, you know, it seems like some people have a great reservoir of grit, and others, you know, it's it's harder for them to demonstrate it. But you know, that leads to the question of whether you can, you know, can you develop it? Can you train it? Can you educate people to? Um, to display that grit more often, and and if so, then you know that's that's a that's another approach. Uh, to dealing with with life stress, it, it seems to me that the monkeys are are the place to to study that <laughs> because their Michael's group is sees which monkeys deal well, you know, are accepted and sure. Take yeah, in. I mean, and, it is one thing that's really um, fascinating about um, monkeys and monkeys that we study is that they have um, personalities just like people do. So yep. you could you know you could go out and do the you know the big five personality. Uh, um, instruments that you would uh, apply to a person, you could do the same thing with a monkey, and we've done that. Mm. Um, and those, um, their personalities are actually consistent over time. So a monkey who's very timid and anxious uh, when he's six months old is going to be the similarly timid and anxious when he's an adolescent at four, and also, you know, and on and on. Yeah. Whereas a monkey's very bold or very aggressive, you'll see those patterns continue. It's not you know, it's not 100%. It's not like it's genetically determined. And I think that's where the fascinating thing is, whatever. It's, you know, maybe 25% seems, or 50% is maybe, is purely genetic. And the rest is is sort of environment and, and how they respond to it. And that's that's why this is so uh, important. Uh, finally, I, I just uh, going back, I've mentioned this to Michael off air before, but I find it unique when you think about the, not necessarily the research, but the concept of, of the pick professors. Oh. Here at Penn, and, and to be able to cross over fields mm -hmm. and be able to gain valuable knowledge th that may link to what you're doing, but from a different perspective, different side of the realm. Talk to you about yep. your perspective on the program of, of yep. working with other professors in this type of interdisciplinary way here at the Penn University of Pennsylvania. It's it really it can't be it can't be overstated how exciting it really is to to interact with people that I would never have interacted with, but for this program it really yeah. does bring people together. So, um, this idea that Michael mentioned that we had to start having discussions around the brain yeah. came from I ran into one of the pick professors in waiting for a plane in in uh, 
Philadelphia in, Airport? No, Heathrow, in, I think. in, in Heathrow. Right. Right. Um, this was Robert Greist, and he's a mathematician, and we realized that we we're both interested in the hippocampus. Yeah. He was interested in the way he's a he studies topology. Okay. And uh, mathematical concepts yep. having to do with space. Yep. And he was interested in the way space is um, the way neurons me- actually are set up uh, to remember space. The, um, the circuitry in the in the brain and in the hippocampus. Right. So we started to talk about it. And I said, oh, well, I'm, we're getting really interested in the hippocampus. We study epigenetics. So then we brought in Michael and his interests and um, a criminologist, Adrian Rain, who, yeah. who's phenomenal. He's interesting, you know, bringing in the question of the criminal brain and how that is related <laughs> to epigenetics. So all of a sudden... Four of us are talking is so exciting, and then we had a public, we had a public lecture. The four of us participated in that, and then we had one of the bioethicists, that's a pick professor, also yeah. involved. So, um, you know, yeah, it's I mean, been it's very really... exciting. I mean, I've been here for two years, and um, you know, it's it it never loses its magic. I mean, the you know, it's like being a kid in a candy store. There's just so much interesting work going on here, and the, you know, really being blessed by you know president amy gutman with the yeah. opportunity yeah. and the and the the wherewithal and you know and the the injunction to just go get it you know go do it don't let anything hold you back so um you know that i think we embrace that wholly do me a favor though if you can yeah. the next time you all get together for a dinner yeah let me know and i'd like an invitation <laughs> okay. because because i i would i would be i think it would be phenomenal to hear all of these ideas in this kind because I, I think it would just be an amazing experience. We'd love to have you. It, it's be great. It, it's yeah. been a pleasure having you both here, and we wish you all the best with the research. Thanks very much, and hopefully we'll be talking about this uh, in the short term in the very near future. Right. Thanks, thanks, Sounds Michael. Great. Thanks, Thank, Shelley. Thanks, all the thanks best. so much. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.